0: Great to see you all today. Thank you, those of you who have uh, joined us here in house and those of you who are joining us at home online. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Aaron has done a great job in introducing the subject to us today. But I'm very conscious that uh, in the preparation, the Lord has very much in in the image of Ezekiel put the bones together put the musculature on the bones, even clothed the body. But still there is no life in this sermon unless the Lord sends the wind of his spirit and causes his breath to breathe into these bones. So as I read this passage, be praying, and then we'll join those prayers together in a moment of prayer in a moment. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Come Holy Spirit, breathe into our hearts, Lord, that we might receive your word today. Breathe into my heart, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might not only be acceptable to you, but might come from you and lead to you and bring others to you also. Because we pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So this is the moment before the moment. This is the moment before the moment. There is a moment when the church in Jerusalem will begin the great work of the evangelization of the world. Jesus, at the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, says to the disciples who were there with him on the Mount of Ascension, He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait. The Father has promised that he will clothe you with power from on high. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. But I want you to wait. Wait until the power of the spirit comes upon you to enable you to fulfill this work and so the disciples as you know spent 10 days in prayer 120 of them in an upper room together they selected a replacement for joseph uh, for judas and they and they prayed and as they were praying on the day of pentecost the room was filled with the sound of the wind filling their hearts and minds. Fire separated and descended on each one of them so that each one of them looked like the tabernacle of the Lord. Each one of them looked like there was a pillar of fire above their heads. God had taken this great promise and had delivered on the promise. The promise that the Holy Spirit would not be restricted to a location, but now would be given to a people. And as the Spirit baptized them, so they began to speak in the tongues of other nations. And the great scattering that had taken place of the Jewish people into the many language groups and cultural groups around the world could hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed in their own language. And of course, this caused great mystery, caused a, a great sense of confusion in the minds of those that were hearing it because they knew that the people that were saying these things were Galileans. And so here is the moment when the whole project begins, but it's not the moment when the project, if you like, is fulfilled there are things to be learned along the way now some preachers and commentators have suggested that the church in Jerusalem had become self referencing self focused self orientated and had failed to fulfill the call of Jesus by going beyond the bounds of Jerusalem, up to the point when Stephen is murdered. And with the, with the persecution, they're scattered. And the suggestion is that God had to use persecution to actually get the church out into the world. And maybe you've heard that, and maybe you've referenced that, and maybe you've thought that. I would like to suggest an alternative reading to the text. I think the reason that we say that is because it fits with our experience what would it take for us to get into the world? Probably quite a big shock. But for them, I'm not so sure it would require such a great shock. I'm not sure that I can argue from the evidence in scripture that the church in Jerusalem was disobedient to the call of Jesus. Rather, I would suggest that what happens between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 8 and here in the end of this, this process, just in the moment before the moment, what we see is the Spirit of God preparing the hearts of the people for the mission that he's given them. And I'd like to demonstrate that to you by just giving you a 30,000 foot journey from chapter one to chapter six, and perhaps just looking beyond, if we're at 30,000 feet, we might be able to look as far as chapter eight. You see, I think that what's happening in these first few chapters of the Acts of the Apostles is something that needs to happen in our hearts also. The church is faced with cultural division the people of the diaspora of the jews had become greek speaking they no longer spoke the tongue of their forefathers aramaic and they were often looked down upon by the aramaic speaking jews when peter speaks to the crowd on the day of pentecost he identifies that there's a, there's a clear division in the minds of the, of the audience. He says, all of you from all over the world and those of you who are residents of Jerusalem. And so already there's a compartmentalization that's going on that, that Peter references. You see, there are those who speak one language and there are those who speak other languages, the languages of the Gentiles, principally the language of, of the Greeks. And here in the church, that reality is represented in the widows who rely upon the daily distribution of food. Now, the way that that cultural division works is generally through language. Culture is created by language. And if you see two people in front of you and one of them speaks your language and the other one doesn't speak your language, it is by nature much easier to speak to the person who knows your language. And if you're speaking their language, you will tend to make a heart connection with them and a cultural connection with them because they are part of the culture that you have been raised in. And so now there is a simple connection, and and as people are going out and distributing the food to the widows, they're obviously connecting much better with the ones who speak the same language as them, rather than the others. Now is there something deliberately racist about this? Of course not. Is there a cultural bias? Yes, of course there is. Of course there's a cultural bias. And so how do we overcome the cultural bias? And why should we? Well, here's the thing. To fulfill the Great Commission, you have to live the great commandment. Yeah? To fulfill the Great Commission, you have to live the great commandment. Say that to your neighbor. To fulfill the great commission, you have to live the great commandment. Say it. Go on, say it to your neighbor. It's really important that we get it. To fulfill the great commission, we have to live the great commandment. What do I mean? Well, the great commission is to every people group, every language group, every cultural group in the world. Every cultural group in Dayton. And why would we learn the culture of another so that we can communicate? And why would we communicate? So we can fulfill the Great Commission. But if it's only on the basis of the Great Commission, it will be a driven, hard-edged reality. But if the reason that we're reaching out is because we remember that before the Great Commission, Jesus gave us the Great Commandment, then we will do it out of love. Here's a person who doesn't know me and I don't know them and they don't speak in quite the same way as me. Do I love them? If I love them, I will lean into them and learn their ways, learn their language, learn the way that they understand the world, and I'll be able to go under the impulse of the Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth because I'll learn the necessary skills of building bridges from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Yeah? Now, this is a commission that's not given just to a few of us, it's given to all of us. Just like the Great Commandment is not just given to a few of us, it's given to all of us. And so, if the Great Commandment and the Great Commission are given to all of us, then all of us are responsible for reaching out beyond our comfort zone, beyond our places of cultural bias, not not because we're wicked, but just because that's the way we are. That's the way we were raised. That's the way we have been trained and, and enculturated. Reaching out from beyond our place of comfort to the place of discomfort so that we can fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. Is anybody hearing me? So how did the Spirit... Prepare the church. Well, Peter and John are on their way to prayers one day around about the time of the evening sacrifice, perhaps three o'clock in the afternoon. They go through the beautiful gate. They see the man who's been crippled from birth. They speak to him in the name of Jesus and he's healed. They speak to the crowd and speak of the name of Jesus, the identity of Jesus that is their identity. They're taken prisoner by the the temple guards. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin reveal the first obstacle to being able to fulfill the great commandment and fulfill the great commission. It's not culture, but it's class. It's not culture. It's class. Within the same cultural frame of the Jewish people, there, were a, there was a class system. The Sanhedrin nudge one another and they say, I say, I say, these men are ordinary and unschooled. Have you ever heard such classist language? Ordinary and unschooled men speaking to us like that. Who do they think they are? And they took note that they had been with who? With Jesus, for whom class means nothing, because he created all men equal. And so the first obstacle was to overcome the barriers created by class. You see, class is one of these things that will help you overcome cultural barriers because it's within your culture, but it's an issue of superiority and inferiority. And if you love somebody... There is nobody who is inferior or superior in that relationship. And so if you love the person who's looking down on you, you're looking at them with a level playing field, eye to eye. You're not looking above them. You're not looking below them. You're looking to them as equals, even if they are choosing to look down upon you or even look up to you. It's often more difficult when people look up to you to adopt a different posture but the posture of radical equality that removes the barriers of class mean that superiority has an axe laid to its root And once superiority has an axe laid to its root, we can begin the journey of reaching out beyond our culture, which may well be class-ridden, into other cultures also. Is anybody hearing me? And so the church, corporately and collectively, is beginning to grow in something that is enormously important. It's growing in wisdom. Now, what were the qualifications for the seven who had to overcome the great cultural divide in the church? What was it? Full of the spirit and wisdom. Let's try that again. Full of the spirit and wisdom. So they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but they grew in wisdom as the Spirit prepared them to overcome obstacles along the way so that they were ready to go from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to the ends of the earth. They're learning wisdom. Now, spiritual power and wisdom are the currency of spiritual capital. And if you want spiritual capital, which is by far and away the most important capital that you can possess and invest, then what you will have by having spiritual capital is you will have spiritual power and wisdom beyond your years, beyond your station in in life, beyond your peers, you will have the wisdom of God. And where does wisdom come from? You see, it's very, very interesting to me the way that the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles work because, you see, the Gospels deal with wisdom at the outset and then reference power at the end. The Acts of the Apostles deals with power at the beginning and trains the disciples in wisdom as they go along. Wisdom, says Jesus, is this. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And that wise man, that wise person, that wise woman, they build their lives, their family, their oikos, their extended set of relationships, they build it on the rock. And what does it mean to build your house on the rock? It means that you hear the voice of God and you put it into practice. The foolish builder hears the voice of God and does not put it into practice. The foolish builder is the one who goes to church every week, celebrates a great sermon, and then doesn't put it into practice. Hello? Yeah? Two people agree with me. Praise God. The wise person, says Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry is the one who hears his words and puts them into practice. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus says, get ready for the power. At the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, the power comes. And as the power comes, it fills their hearts, and the Holy Spirit breathes into them and makes it possible for them to learn what it means to be wise stewards of God's power what it means to be wise stewards of God's word, what it means to be wise stewards of the good news of Jesus. And they learn the wisdom of, of extending beyond themselves. They, they learn the wisdom of, of how to live with the call of the Great Commission in the presence of the Great Commandment. And they see the Sanhedrin and they love them And they see the power elite. And they love them. And they see the people who are above them and below them according to everyone else's views of the world. And they love them. And the wisdom grows in them. And so now they've dealt with class. But what about, what about something beyond class? What about, what about context? Well, here's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's one particular context. It's got a particular group of people with the same culture. And then there's Judea. It's got the same culture, but it's a different context. Jesus says you'll you'll go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. How do they learn how to reach Judea from Jerusalem? By Judea coming to them. Chapter 5. Right after They've begun to engage with the issues of class. They now begin to engage with the issues of context. And they discover that in whatever context, people hunger for the presence of God. Because the people from all around the region, Judea, came to Jerusalem to be healed of their diseases and to be delivered of their demons. Now, this is tremendously important because what they were learning was that the people who are of the same culture and of the same language basically functioned in the same way that they did. That the people that were right in front of them responding to the good news would would be identical to the ones who are just like them in another place. And so the context did not define what a culture would do by way of response to God. And so they learned that. And they thought, you know, it's going to be easy for us to to go to Judea. It's It's a simple step to go from Jerusalem to Judea because the things that we've seen in Jerusalem, we definitely will see in Judea. But what about beyond Judea? What about when we find the cultural others? What about when we find people with a different language? What about when we find people of a different disposition, a different worldview? Well, God makes sure that they have that little preparation as well because the Grecian widows and the Hebraic widows are not getting the same distribution of food. And so now they have to deal with the cultural divide. Do you see the great wisdom of God? Do you see how God in his Wonderful understanding of our hearts and lives gives us stepping stones toward his glory. He gives us simple steps towards what it is that he wants us to fulfill. What does he want us to fulfill? Well, I would suggest to you that the minimum that he wants us to fulfill is to reach out beyond ourselves to the people of our geographical region, Dayton, Miami Valley. But if we step into Dayton and Miami Valley and do not take into account the issues of class and context and culture, we'll inevitably fail in our communication. And so what do we learn? We learn wisdom. And what does wisdom do? Wisdom does something inside of us. It not only prepares us for something outside of us, it does something inside of us. At the very beginning of the story of the Acts of the Apostles, we see the disciples finding themselves under the open heaven, under which Jesus functioned and did his ministry and mission. The open heaven, the torn sky from which the dove descended upon Jesus and filled him for ministry and mission. That open heaven was now the open heaven above the church of Jesus Christ. And they had learned from Jesus how to maintain their place under that open heaven. But they still needed to have an open heart. Having an open heaven is wonderful but you've got to have an open heart. You have to have a heart that is ready to receive the cultural other. You have to have a heart that's ready to receive the person that looks down on you. You have to have a heart to receive the person that looks up to you. You have to have the heart of Jesus himself that considers all people equal. So equal did Jesus consider us that he went to the cross for each one of us. And Jesus fulfilled his commission because he lived out his command. And So here we are in the crucible of God's preparation, seeing the church being developed and made ready for the great day when the scattering will come. And when the scattering comes, will the gospel go forward or will the church collapse? Well, we're here so we know the answer. What has God been doing in us? I would suggest he's doing in us the work of preparation. Is it that we are wise people that need to be filled with the Spirit, or are we people who are full of the Spirit who need to become wise? I don't know. Maybe a bit of both. But what I know is this. For any great obstacle that faces us, it's impossible to overcome it without spiritual capital. When the church faced its big problem, its first big problem, cultural problem that could have riven the church and divided it forever, when it came to that moment, the disciples had such insight into how Jesus would have done it that they said this, the qualification for these leaders is very simple. They have to have spiritual capital. They need to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They need to be people with spiritual capital who have spiritual currency that they can invest in the lives of others, that they can invest in the situation that's before us. God is giving us a great call. Where is your spiritual capital? Are you full to overflowing with the Spirit? Are you wise in your dealing with others? Are you able to live out the great commission because you live in the great commandment? These are not complex things, but they're incredibly hard. The gospel is always simple and hard. Simple because anyone can understand it. Hard because it requires the giving up of our life to fulfill it. so corporately and individually preparation is needed for us to fulfill the great commission of Jesus because we have to learn how to put the pieces of living in the great commandment together we have to we have to be able to connect what it means to love that person who looks down on us we need to connect what it means to love that person who looks up to us we need to be able to connect what it means to love that person who doesn't look like us, doesn't speak like us, doesn't think like us. How do we love them? How do we communicate with them? How do we share the good news that, that has changed and captivated our hearts? Because we live under an open heaven and we have open hearts. And here's the thing. If you have an open heaven and you have open hearts, you will have an open harvest. You've got to tell your neighbor that because it's so easy to remember, isn't it? Open heaven plus open hearts equals open harvest. Tell your neighbor, go on. Harvest, got it, Ben. Well done, brother, good man. Ben's just on the front row to help me out this morning. Thank you, brother. So, where are we in this process? I know that we've been somewhat stirred by this thought of the open heaven. Are we going to be deeply challenged about the need for an open heart? And as God connects This call to the open heaven, this call to have the open heart. Will we see the open harvest? Well, this is what Jesus says. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends out workers. And what would those workers look like? They would look like Stephen. They would look like people who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom because they're the only kinds of people that can overcome the barriers of class and context and culture, surely. And so we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and why are they few? Because there are so few who will live under the open heaven and learn how to have open hearts. The harvest stands waiting for the workers and we are the workers and god wants us to live under that open heaven and and live with that open heart and it changes everything now as a as a staff team as a leadership team we've been we've been wrestling with these things and we've We've looked at ways in which we can train the wider community of Apex and how we can connect with the wider world in which we're we're placed. And we've come to a realization that, that perhaps the way to do this is to learn the language of the world around us and apply it to the issues that we face. And so even though I truly, truly despise social media, we have built a social media platform for the people of Apex protected from the wolves who would come and tear it apart where we can have godly conversations one with another, where we can share with one another our breakthroughs and our understandings, where we can learn from one another and we can begin to encourage one another to outdo one another in zeal. The Resonde platform is just precisely that. I don't know whether we have that available to us to show, but um, I think we might do. How are we doing? Oh, look, we've got a little cursor on the screen. Those of you at home have no idea what I'm talking about, but I've got something going around on the screen right now. Just wave to me from the balcony there if you've got a sense. Is it not going to work? You don't think so? Oh, hang on. There it is. Is that it? Yeah. OK, so let's see if we can get onto it. Maybe we oh, Is that it already? Yeah, I think we're there already. So, so this, is, um, this is pretty much like Facebook. So we've got all this stuff going on. We've got, uh, we've got the event coming up. We've got topics that we've got. We've got breakthroughs. See the, the breakthroughs that people are having? There's Joan sharing some stuff and Karen and Gwen, a leader from Alaska. Jason, he talks a lot. (laughs) And um, did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to say that out loud. But it's a great thing because now we have a place where we can not only connect with one another, but here's the thing. We can learn how the world functions and learn the language of our culture without feeling like we're either crushed or in competition. But we've also got another platform, well, we've got lots right now, but we've got interlocking platforms. We've got another platform, called walking with heroes and what we wanted to do was to have a coaching platform where we could coach leaders but we realized that the leaders that we that we really were most devoid of were young leaders and so we looked at the young people and we went to the young people and we said what would the website look like if it was kind of (laughs) cool and not kind of pretend church cool but really cool and um, walking with heroes came along and um, we decided that Like everything else in our society, the old people like me would put up with the fact that it's youthful, but the young people wouldn't put up with the fact that it was old, and so we just made it young, and um, we went into this whole deal. So we've got all kinds of introductory ideas and thoughts that are right there on Walking With Heroes. You can click on that if you want to. So what does this represent? It represents us growing in wisdom, learning how to connect, learning how to... Make a step towards the cultural other. Old people in the congregation. The cultural other are the young people sitting over there. It's a whole another world. It's a whole another worldview, and just like the people in Jerusalem who were the first church, who had Judea come to them, they've come to us. Isn't that awesome? Round of applause for that group over there, please. Thank you. Because we're learning from you what it means to make the pivot, what it means to, to make the step. So we're doing that collectively, but what about individually? How do we grow in our spiritual capital? Well, a friend of mine within the congregation, Mark Belcastro, has been going through real difficulties, real, real struggles and privations, and he and I have prayed together, as he has prayed with other members of the congregation, and many of you know him well. He's put a little testimony together, and as you listen to this testimony, I want you to listen for the growth in spiritual capital. How is God growing Mark, and how does he want to grow you? Let's run
1: that video. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Castro. I would call myself a long-term apexer. It was the early 2000s that my wife and I, Kim, Val Castro started uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to share with you and encourage you some healing that I've been able to experience over the past year uh, some of you know me if you don't I'm a physician uh, I've been at Miami Valley Hospital for about 35 years the first 30 years I was in uh, the neonatal intensive care unit and the last five years I've been serving in administrative roles So during my years, I had opportunity to pray for patients. I did see some healings, but you know, as a physician, sometimes you may write that off to, well the physiology's just worked out, but uh, through just some conversations and learnings with Mike over the past year, year and a half, and my personal experience, uh, I've come to be much more solid in my belief about the role of healing in our walk as believers. So I'm going to talk about two things Uh, the first thing i'm going to talk about is uh, at the end of last summer uh, i was diagnosed with cancer lymphoma in my thoracic spine and so i've been treated for that Uh, but uh, there was a really neat experience i had during that workup of healing that i'm going to talk about near the end but throughout the journey uh, with cancer uh, and also had COVID during this whole ordeal. Uh, the Lord gave me a lot of assurance about my healing being secure in this journey, a lot of scriptures. And I, I wanted to share just a few of those with you. Uh, one of the first ones, uh, when Mike was visiting me right after the diagnosis, I told him uh, that the Lord laid tw- Psalm 27, 13 on my heart. He read that to me in a translation called the Passion Translation. Yet I totally trust you to rescue me one more time so I can see once again how good you are while I'm still alive. And I believe the Lord gave me that verse because he spoke clearly to my heart that this cancer was not going to be a disease that would would take my life. Another one that uh, was given to me by the Lord during this time was Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. There were a lot of other scriptures on healing that the Lord gave me uh, during this time. He actually challenged me to study healing in the last uh, eight, nine months I've been studying healing in the Bible and reading uh, various books on it. Uh, a couple more, Psalm 18 verses 28 and 29. Uh, this, these were verses that Mike gave me about halfway through my journey encouraging me to go on the offensive against the enemy. He said, you've been in a defensive mode, let's go on the offensive. Uh, you Lord, keep my lamp burning, my god turns my darkness into light with your help i can advance against a troop with my god i can scale a wall and then further on in psalm 18 verses 32 and 34 it is god who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he causes me to stand on the heights he trains my hands for a battle my arms can bend a bow of bronze so those were very powerful uh, verses that the Lord gave me on this journey. But the one kind of really neat part of this whole story was actually while my diagnosis of cancer was made. I had probably for about a decade developed a low back problem down in my lumbar area with some nerve compression. And uh, I was close to having surgery at one point, but I decided to opt for physical therapy, which helped. Uh, and uh, early on in Mike's uh, journey with us at Apex, he had learned of my low back problem. And he prayed for it on a couple of different occasions. Uh, on the second occasion, I actually felt uh, a warmth go through my body and through my back. And I, I told him that. And over the ensuing months after that, uh, I was thinking back after about three or four months. And I thought, I haven't had any pain in about three or four months. Still a little bit of weakness in my leg, but no pain. And then I started d- developing the symptoms of this cancer. And uh, as I was being worked up, they uh, were doing MRIs and things of my spine to make the diagnosis of this cancer, and, uh, which was up higher in my back. So this was about the end of the summer, and uh, Mike had prayed for me, probably it would have been late winter, early spring for my low back. But I got a call from the neurosurgeon and she said, there's something going on uh, that looks pretty serious. We're gonna need to, to do a biopsy of that area. But she said, by the way, all of the stuff that was going on in your low back on the MRI, it's gone. And so, Uh, we kind of had definitive evidence that the prayer for my low back had resulted in a healing. Continue to be encouraged in whatever you're going through and whatever healing journey you're in. Uh, Stay faithful uh, and continue to pray. Thank you.
0: So how would God work in us Spiritual capital, where there's power and wisdom at work so that we live under the open heaven that provides all the power and with an open heart that connects all the wisdom so that we can see an open harvest. How? By God doing in your life precisely what he's doing right now. Because if right now in whatever it is that you're going through, you will commit to answering the two questions of discipleship. You will grow in wisdom. Did you notice that Mark just wanted to spend time with people that could pray with him, that could give him godly counsel and that he could read the scriptures? Did you notice that? He's answering the first question. Jesus, what are you saying to me? And then he's looking for ways to apply it. And so he's answering the second question, and what am I going to do about it? What is God saying to you right now? And what are you going to do about it? And if you'll answer those questions, you will grow in wisdom. And if you'll grow in wisdom, you'll be ready for the outpouring of the spirit and if you've already been part of the outpouring of the spirit you'll continue to grow in wisdom whether it's the gospel story where wisdom comes first and power comes second or whether it's the story of the acts where power comes first and wisdom comes second it matters not we need both we need both And so whatever your spiritual experience is, whether it be power first and wisdom second, wisdom first or power second, we need both. We need the capital of God's spirit and the currency of that capital to be able to invest in the lives of others. God is preparing you and me right now. Will we allow him to do that? And in doing that, will we learn the necessary steps to fulfill the great commission by living in the great commandment? Under an open heaven, with an open heart, with eyes for the open harvest. Jesus, thank you for your word today. Lord cause these words to settle in our hearts and cause us to remember them tomorrow. Remind us, Lord, of the great commission and the great commandment. Remind us, Lord, of the open heaven and the open heart. And Lord, show us the open harvest because, Lord, we want to be accompanied to the gates of heaven by many. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be gracious to us in this and hear our prayer, and all God's people say,